Esther, and I'm going to read from chapter one. It's an incredible story, the story of Esther. It's great fun. It's almost a pantomime type story. We'll see this as the, the, the kind of weeks progress. There are times when it's read in a Jewish festival called Purim, where the children will kind of cheer and shake rattles to drown out parts of the story. Now, I'm not going to tell you what parts because I really don't want drowning out. Uh, but it is an exciting story. And uh, we're going to start uh, at the beginning, unsurprisingly, of chapter one. So let's hear the word of God. Chapter one, the story of Esther. Now, in the days of Ahasuerus, the Ahasuerus who reigned from India to Ethiopia, over 127 provinces. In those days when King Ahasuerus sat on his royal throne in Susa, the citadel, in the third year of his reign, he gave a feast for all his officials and servants. The army of Persia and Media and the nobles and governors of the provinces were before him, while he showed the riches of his royal glory and the splendor and pomp of his greatness for many days, 180 days. And when these days were completed, the king gave for all the people present in Susa, the citadel, both great and small, a feast lasting for seven days in the court of the garden of the king's palace. There were white cotton curtains and violet hangings fastened with cords of fine linen and purple to silver rods and marble pillars and also couches of gold and silver on a mosaic pavement and porphyry, marble, mother of pearl and precious stones. Drinks were served in golden vessels, vessels each of a different kind, and the royal wine was lavished according to the bounty of the king. And drinking was according to this edict. There is no compulsion. For the king had given orders to all the staff of his palace to do each man as he desired. Queen Vashti also gave a feast for the women in the palace that belonged to King Ahasuerus. On the seventh day, when the heart of the king was merry with wine, he commanded Mehaman, Bidsta, Harbona, Bigtha, and Abagtha, Zethar and Karkas, the seven eunuchs who served in the presence of King Ahasuerus, to bring Queen Vashti before the king with her royal crown in order to show the peoples and the princes her beauty, for she was lovely to look at. But Queen Vashti refused to come at the king's command, delivered by the eunuchs. At this, the king became enraged and his anger burned within him. Then the king said to the wise men who knew the times, for this was the king's procedure to all who were versed in the law and judgment, the men next to him being Koshena, Shetha, Admatha, Tarshish, Meresh, Barshena and Memukan, the seven princes of Persia and Media, who saw the king's face and sat first in the kingdom. According to the law, what is to be done to Queen Vashti? Because she's not performed the command of King Ahasuerus, delivered by the eunuchs. Then Memekan said in the presence of the king and the officials, not only against the king has Queen Vashti done wrong, but also against all the officials and all the peoples who are in all the provinces of King Ahasuerus. For the queen's behavior will be made known to all women, causing them to look at their husbands with contempt. Since they'll say, King Ahasuerus commanded Queen Vashti to be brought for him, and she did not come. This very day, the noble women of Persia and Media who've heard of the queen's behavior will say the same to all the king's officials, and there will be contempt and wrath in plenty. If it please the king, let a royal order to go out from him, and let it be written among the laws of the Persians and the Medes, so that it may not be repealed, that Vashti is never again to come before King Ahasuerus. And let the king give a royal position to another who's better than she. 
So when the decree made by the king is proclaimed throughout all his kingdom, for it is vast, all women will give honour to their husbands high and low alike. This advice pleased the king and the princes, and the king did as Memucan proposed. He sent letters to all the royal provinces, to every province in its own script, and to every people in its own language, that every man be master in his own household and speak according to the language of his people. There we go. What a story. Uh, In the early 20th century, uh, there was much persecution of Jews across Europe, uh, which caused many of them to move to the USA uh, to emigrate and find uh, peace and safety, Uh, particularly in New York. All those stories of the boats arriving and seeing the Statue of Liberty. And finally, there is the, the, the promised land, peace and hope. Among them uh, were the parents of Robert Kahn, Bill Finger, Julius Schuster, and Jerry Siegel. I wonder if those names mean anything to any of you. You don't have to admit it if they do. Um, It is slightly nerdy knowledge. Uh, Julius Schuster, Jerry Siegel, Robert Kahn, and Bill Finger, between them, were the creators of Batman and Superman. Batman and Superman were born, as it were, in the 1930s in America. And each of them, each superhero, was created by those of Jewish descent and ancestry, many of whom, in fact, all of whom had been born elsewhere, who'd grown up in a different culture, had fled persecution. Often they changed their names. And these superheroes, Batman, Superman, apparently it's also true of the Avengers and the Fantastic Four and the X-Men, they were created by these Jewish emigres. And you can sort of see why, can't you? Here are these men who fled persecution, whose identity is deeply rooted in their religion. They are the people of Israel, the people of Yahweh. They are Jewish people, but they're now living in a totally different culture. And they're learning to survive. And so you get these superheroes who have these kind of two identities. You've got Batman, haven't you, children? Remember Batman, Bruce Wayne, who by day looks like a kind of businessman, but who has another identity, masked, hidden, but it's kind of greater mission to bring peace to Gotham City. So too Superman, by day, a kind of blending into the background Clark Kent journalist. But when danger comes, again, on goes the disguise, on goes the other identity. And off he goes to save the world. Two identities, two cultures, two ways of living. People of God, the story of Esther, were also refugees. As the story begins, we, we read we're in the, the, the reign of King Ahasuerus. Now, that is the last time I hope I'm going to try and pronounce that name. Okay, it is very difficult to pronounce. Um, apparently, it is Ahasuerus, but I can't say it. Okay, so I'm going to start calling him the king from now onwards, and you'll know who I mean. Uh, we don't know exactly who this is. It's probably, most likely, it's a king known to us from the kind of Greek histories like Herodotus. It's probably a guy called King Xerxes. Uh, which thankfully I can say. Um, uh, This king was the king of the Medo-Persian Empire. You see that down in verse uh, two or three it is. Uh, The armies of Persia and Media. And we're introduced straight away to an impressive empire. That's what we're going to look at first. Verses one to nine, an impressive empire. This is not a Jewish king. And the action of Esther is not set in the land of Israel. 
In fact, the land of Israel has been um, steadily pulled apart over the last few hundred years. Uh, if you know the story of the Old Testament, in fact, if you don't know the story of the Old Testament, come to Sunday school next week, 9.30, that's what we're doing. Okay, that's the end of the sermon. No. Uh, the story of the Old Testament tells of God rescuing a people and bringing them into the land of Israel. And there are 12 tribes. Remember Joseph in his technicolor dream coat, his 11 brothers? There are 12 tribes. But over many hundred years, the tribes begin to rebel, ignore God, turn to other gods. And so in 721 BC, till now 721 years before Jesus was born, the Assyrian Empire comes and wipes out the 10 northern tribes. Okay, the kingdom is kind of split in two by this stage. And the 10 northern tribes are wiped out. And just at the bottom, the kingdom of Judah remains, particularly the tribe of Judah, Benjamin too. And they struggle on for a bit longer. But in 597 BC, um, the Babylonian Empire come and take Judah. And take the, the cream of Judah off into exile to Babylon. These kind of stories you read about in Daniel. Daniel was taken off uh, into Babylon, King Nebuchadnezzar and his descendants. And what happened next was that um, Judah was left basically in ruin. The temple was burnt. The city was burnt. A few people were left in the land, but they were the stragglers. The kind of elite and the cream and the promising young men and women were taken off into the empire. But in time, that empire, the Babylonian empire, fell and fell to or fell to the Persians. And so as we start the story of Esther, that's where we are. The Persians have kind of conquered all the Babylonian empire. And you'll see down there. Uh, in verse 1, that king, the king <laughs> reigned from India right the way across to Ethiopia. The, the empire has a huge size. Everything from kind of Pakistan, North India, sweeping across through Kazakhstan and Uzbekistan, as we think of it now, Armenia, Georgia, into Turkey. They ruled all that as well. Uh, right across into Israel, Jordan, Syria, Iraq, Iran, down into Egypt, Ethiopia, even Sudan. Uh, the north of Greece, basically the entire known world to so those who lived in the Middle East, was under the kings of Persia. And so the Jews themselves, God's people, a few remained in the land, but many, and certainly all those we're going to meet in our story of Esther, they are in exile. They're away from their promised land. And you can understand they might begin to think, well, there's no escape from an empire like this. It's striking, isn't it? 127 provinces. It stretches way beyond even the imagination, let alone the knowledge of most ordinary Jewish men and women of the 6th century BC. This empire is inescapable. Now, one of the themes we'll come back to time and again in, in this book of Esther is the link between the Jews then and Christians nowadays. Uh, the people of God develop over time. And in the New Testament, we're told it is ultimately, and in fact, it always has been, those who have faith in God's promises, you are the people of God. And therefore, we too are living in a situation similar to that of Esther and Mordecai and the Jews will, will meet in this book. We're not home, are we? We know this world is not our home. Things are not as they should be. Now, the world is not run on Christian principles. It is very likely your school or university, your flat, your place of work is not particularly pro-Jesus. 
And we know the culture we live in, the world we live in, it seems just vast and inescapable. And so the pressure on us is just to give in, to fit in, isn't it? How could we ever escape the empire of this world? It's so big. Uh, The power, the impressiveness of the empire is then pushed further as the the king decides to throw a feast. You see that? In the third year, verse 3 of his reign, he gave a feast for all his officials and servants. And so the army come there, the generals with their kind of fancy hats and all their medals, uh, the chief civil servants, the governors of the province. Here comes all the kind of um, sub-kings who reign. Here comes Nicholas Sturgeon and whoever the Welsh guy is. And here all the other guys come across uh, under the king. And he gives this, this feast for 180 days, verse 4, where he displays all the wonders of his empire. He brings out the giraffes um, that the sort of Azerbaijanis have never seen and the, uh, all, all the wonders he's captured from India. Uh, the gold, the jewels, all the, all the temples he's robbed. He brings out everything, shows them his slaves, his harem, all to impress the leaders of the empire. The pomp, the majesty, the glory, it's all there in verse 4. And on it goes for nearly half a year, 180 days, children. That's half a year, isn't it? Whether the feast lasted all that time or whether the feast was at the beginning and then he just did this giant show for 180 days, not totally clear. But at the end of the 180 days, he's not finished. Verse 5, when those days were completed, the king gave for all the people present in Susa, the citadel, both great and small, a feast lasting for another seven days. This time the feast is not just for the the governors, the generals, the prime ministers, the viziers. This is for everyone who lives in the citadel. Now the citadel was like the, uh, it wasn't the city of Susa, it wasn't the whole city. The citadel was like um, the centre of power, like the Kremlin today or something. Uh, Imagine a kind of, uh, an area where uh, you'll find Buckingham Palace and Number 10 Downing Street uh, and uh, the headquarters of the army and the head of the civil service and the Bank of England all kind of enclosed in one wall. That would be the citadel. And everybody from the top officials down to the humblest servants gets to feast again in this amazing banquet. It's so amazing, verse 8. Uh, everyone gets to drink whatever they want on the, on the king, Xerxes or whichever king it is, says, look, the tab's on me. Open bar, free bar, anything you like. You don't have to. Okay, Christians, if you want to stick to the schler, that's fine. But everyone, get stuck in. And in verse 7, we read that everybody had a different drinking cup. Drinks were served in golden vessels, vessels of different kinds. No two cups are the same. Gold, um, silver, bronze, jewels, emeralds. It is an incredible display of wealth. In fact, the only description we get in the Old Testament that is anything like what we read in Esther 1 of the place, all that's, remember the stuff we read about the, the curtain rods and the hangings and the couches, is the, the temple, the house of God. It's as if we're being shown, look, this is Cyrus's house, and it doesn't it look richer and more splendid than anything God has got? And so just as God's people might have been tempted to think, well, this empire is inescapable. Well, so too they might also begin to think, well, it's inescapable, but frankly, I kind of like it. Isn't it good? Isn't it amazing how Xerxes can bless me? Isn't it incredible how generous and kind he is? The world, the empire of this world, it doesn't look so bad. And surely it's better, therefore, 
just to fit in. Makes sense, doesn't it? After all, God's country seems to have been torn to pieces, bashed up. His plans never really seem to come fruition. All that stuff about a land flowing with milk and honey, it doesn't really seem to have come to pass. I mean, I've heard of stuff happening years and years ago, but what my eyes tell me now is that it's Ahasuerus who's got the money, who's got the power, who can bless me, feed me, make my life go well. To our eyes, it seems, the empires of this world hold all the cards, all the power, all the glory, all the blessings. And that's only exacerbated by the fact that it can seem that God is very distant. Now, that's certainly the case for the the Jews of Esther's day. Children, if you were to guess how many times in the book of Esther, which has got 10 chapters, okay, 10 chapters, how many times do you think God's name comes up in the whole of the book of Esther? 10 chapters. Don't shout out, but let me tell you, none. At no point in the whole book of Esther do we hear the name of God. It's unique in the Bible in that way. Not only do we not hear the name of God, we don't read about the temple or the sacrifices or offerings. There are no priests. There are no prophets. Nobody comes on stage with a message from God. No visions, no dreams. There are no miracles. At no point does anything spectacular happen. The Red Sea parting or the lion's mouths being shut like they were for Daniel. No one survives a fiery furnace. In fact, no one even prays. It seems that God is entirely absent. And so if we're judging by our eyes, as we look around with Esther and Mordecai and the Jews of their day, then what we see is very much what 21st century Christians see. All the power, all the glory, all the opportunities, all the blessing is in the hands of the world. And God, if we're really honest, seems a bit distant. When did you last see someone walk on water? When did you last see the dead raised? Oh, you've read about it in the Bible. You hear about it on Sundays at church. But when did you last see it? When did you last see an angel or a host of angels praising God? When did you last meet a prophet who had a message direct from God, who could speak on God's behalf? When did God last appear on earth to you? We know the answer. It's the same for everyone in this world, in this room. Never. None of these things have ever happened to us. And so what Esther, the book of Esther, is going to help us do is learn to live by our ears, not our eyes. By our ears, not our eyes. To live by faith and not by sight. No need to turn to it now. But in the book of Hebrews, we get this great list of those who've lived by faith. And one of them is Moses. Just listen to what the book of Hebrews says about Moses. That's Hebrews 11, 24 to 27. Let me read it to you. By faith, Moses, when he was grown up, refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter. Remember, he was born in the palace. He was born in the world, as it were. 
It's as if he was the son of King Ahasuerosh. All was open to him. But by faith, he refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter, choosing rather to be mistreated with the people of God than to enjoy the fleeting pleasures of sin. He could see the banquets. He could see the way of life open to him if he just kept quiet about being one of God's people. He could see, too, that if he did own up to being a, an Israelite, if he was to follow the true king, then it would mean suffering. He chose to be mistreated rather than engage in the fleeting pleasures, the fading pleasures of sin. On the author says, he considered the reproach of Christ, the shame of being a Christian, greater wealth than the treasures of Egypt. I can see what Ahasuerus can offer, but it's nothing compared to what Jesus can offer, even though following Jesus will mean suffering and shame for me. Why? For he was looking to the reward. By faith he left Egypt, not being afraid of the anger of the king, for he endured. And here's the key phrase. He endured as seeing him who is invisible. As if seeing him who is invisible. It's an interesting phrase, isn't it? Moses lived by faith as if he could see him who is invisible. Who's invisible, children? Who's he talking about? It's God, isn't it? One translation, I love the way one translation puts it. It says, Moses kept his eye on the invisible God. It's a great way of putting it, isn't it? That that's our calling. As we live in the empire of Xerxes or Ahasuerus, or frankly, the empire of the 21st century, our role is to keep our eye on the king that we cannot see. Keep our eye on the invisible God. And we do it by listening, by being driven by the word, not by our eyes. When you wake up each morning, the world will have loads to offer you. The Bible tells us that ultimately there are only really two empires. Yes, there's been Nebuchadnezzar and there was Cyrus and there was Xerxes. This Persian empire falls a bit later. We hear about it in Daniel. Falls to the Greeks, Alexander the Great. They then fall to the Romans. And in the days of Jesus, it's Caesar Augustus who's on the throne. There are all these empires, but behind them, the Bible says, really there's only one ruler. Paul calls him the prince of this world, the ruler of the kingdom of the air. Elsewhere, he's just called the devil or Satan. He has a kingdom and God has a kingdom. God's kingdom is the church. Satan's kingdom has all sorts of faces, comes to us in all sorts of guises. But fundamentally, it is just about not being in the church. Now, don't misunderstand me here. I am not saying, for example, the kingdom of England is Satan's kingdom or something. Don't don't mishear it in a kind of really direct way, as if that's the case. Of course, you can be both English and in the kingdom of Jesus. In fact, you'll have to belong to one nation on earth and live in the kingdom uh, of Christ. The point rather is, who is your ultimate emperor? Who is your ultimate king? Whose kingdom has top priority in your life? Satan will tempt you with all the treasures of Persia. And he's a genius at it. Children, do you know what Satan loves doing most? What his favourite thing is? If you read the cartoons or watch the cartoons, he likes poking people with a sort of forked stick. If you, if you kind of go outside on Halloween, he, he likes jumping out of people and kind of saying boo and frightening you. That's not really what Satan likes doing best. What he likes doing best is giving. He is a great giver. He loves to give. 
He gave an apple to Eve to tempt her away from God. He gave wine to Noah to get him drunk to tempt him away from God. He gave a naked bathing woman to David to tempt him away from God. He gave a purse of silver to Judas to tempt him away from obedience to the true king. He will give you whatever you like to get your way from King Jesus, to compromise your service to King Jesus, to make you submit to King Ahasuerus, not to King Jesus. And for each of us in this room, there will be something that coaxes you away from Jesus. And it is very unlikely to be something kind of psychotically wicked. For most of us, it is very unlikely Satan is going to tempt us into being some sort of serial killer or or devil worshipper. We're not going to be sacrificing goats and drawing kind of pentagons on on the ground or whatever. But that's fine with Satan. He doesn't care about that. He just wants you away from wholehearted service to Jesus. So he might fill your hands with... Uh, just just the, the, the endless busyness of career. He might fill your hands with an obsession with your family. He might fill your hands with a desire to always be doing the house up. He'll give you whatever you like. As long as it pulls you away from Christ. And notice again, all those things are kind of fine things. That's the genius of it, isn't it? Okay, you will need a career, most of you. Many of you will have family. Okay, you'll want to live in a house. You want to live indoors. The question is, am I doing all these things, looking after my kids, working my career, building my house? Am I doing them in the service of Jesus or fundamentally have I shoved him off stage and we're now living for this world? The impressive empire always wants to suck you in. Well, if there's an impressive empire, secondly, finally this morning, there's also a petty emperor, an impressive empire, but a petty emperor. This is verses 10 through 22, the rest of our story. Uh, Do you remember what happened? Verse 10, on the seventh day, this is of the second feast, uh, when the king was merry with wine. He's drunk a bit too much now. And he has this idea. He's going to summon Vashti, his wife, the queen. And he's going to parade her. Uh, He sends the eunuchs to bring Queen Vashti, verse 11, with her royal crown in order to show the peoples, verse 11, and the princes her beauty, for she was lovely to look at. Great, says the king. I've shown them all my my zoo. I've sold them my exotic animals and birds. I've shown them all my gold, all my soldiers. Now I'll bring out the queen. And they can all look at her and realise how amazing I am. But it goes wrong. Vashti's not up for it. Uh, Vashti refuses to come and the king gets enraged. Now, at this point, depending on kind of where you live in the history of the world, what has tended to happen is people have kind of taken a position on Vashti. Uh, and, and what's really interesting is it, 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 what you think of Vashti seems to depend almost entirely what century you live in. So you can imagine in the modern world, People look at Vashti and say, what a, what a legend. Okay, what a hero. Okay? She is standing up for, for women's rights. She's not going to be exploited. She's going to tell her, her husband to go and get stuffed, even though he's the emperor. Okay, and Vashti is put, put forward as this kind of figure of female kind of power and emancipation. Go back a few centuries, Jewish commentators and Christian commentators, and some of them will say, what does he think she's doing disobeying her husband? Wives, you're told in the New Testament to submit to your husband. What do you think... But both essentially doing the same thing, trying to draw a moral lesson 
from Vashti's actions. But we're not really told why Vashti said no. It may be that she, did, she knew she was going to be exploited and sort of shown around and she was standing up. That is possible. It may be, given she's been feasting for a week too, maybe she's drunk too. And she just had a tiff with her husband. Who knows? We're just not told. I don't think that's where we go for lessons. Not that we don't draw lessons from the characters. It's just that the focus is not so much on the reasons for Vashti's refusal, which may be very honourable or may not, we don't really know. But rather the focus is on the king. And there I think we can see more clearly. This is a king whose focus is showing off. He's a show-off king, children. It's there in verse 4. He showed the riches of his royal glory. And now he wants to do the same with his wife, verse 11. He wants to show everyone how beautiful she is to look at. He is massively concerned with what other people think of him. He wants the honour and the glory. He wants them to look and be amazed. What a guy to have a wife as beautiful as that. Uh, One commentator, one scholar who writes about this passage um, says about the king, and in fact he applies it to other kings as well, kings, are always reading their images in other people's eyes. Isn't that so insightful? They're always reading their images in other people's eyes. In other words, what they think about themselves is totally dependent on what other people think. Their whole worth, their whole sense of self is based on other people telling them they're great, they're wonderful. That's probably why the king doesn't just execute Vashti or doesn't just sort of say, well, she doesn't want to come, you're going to force her in. That's not enough. That would just be power. He wants the honour. He wants the... And it's certainly why he becomes angry in verse 12. At this, the king became enraged and his anger burned within him. Lots of anger words. Because he cares so much what everyone else thinks. And there's a warning for us there, isn't there? There's a warning for us who live in the empire of King Ahasuerus that we can become like the emperor. That's actually what will happen later in the book. Some of the king's servants will become very like him. Harmon will see this kind of chief baddie. He too is going to be obsessed with what other people think. He's always reading his image in other people's eyes. Why do you get cross when your, your children misbehave in public? Is it because you're really concerned that they grow up in godliness and submit to their parents and you're, you care about their, their spiritual well-being? Or is it because it embarrasses you and you're worried that other people will think you're a bad parent? Are you reading your image in other people's eyes? Uh, Instagram has passed 2 billion accounts, apparently. It's incredible, isn't it? World population of 7 point something billion and 2 billion Instagram accounts. Uh, one American study was done that discovered, at least among kind of younger people, one third of women changed their body shape or weight before posting uh, online. We care how we're seen. And if it looks like we're going to be seen in a way that it is to our detriment, we get angry. You're embarrassing me. If we lose control, we get angry. If we're dishonoured, we get angry. We're reading our image in other people's eyes. We're driven by what other people think. That works both ways, by the way. It's both that we read our image in other people's eyes and what we think about ourselves tend to be reflected in what we think other people think. 
In other words, when someone says to you, oh, I, I think my, my friends all think I'm stupid, you can be pretty sure that deep down they're worried they're a bit thick. When someone says to you, oh, all my friends think I'm boring, it's because they think they're boring. This empire is one of total insecurity. It looks so full of glory and power, but it is emptiness behind. It's fear. Even the emperor at the top is on edge. Seems to have everything, and yet empty. Are you driven by the same concerns? Reading your image in other people's eyes all the time. Well, what's the answer? As we wrap up, what's the answer? I'm sorry to do this, um, but I've got three L's. And they come from the, one of the most annoying inventions of the last 20 years. Um, if you've been in shops um, and they sell you those little kind of posters for your kitchen or tea towels or cups that say live, laugh, love. Okay? It's incredibly cheesy, isn't it? But there's three things I think Esther 1 tells us to do. Live, laugh and love. Let's start with a laugh. Um, it is a satirical book. It's meant to be a funny book. We're meant to laugh at the emperor. And that'll go on and on in the bo- book. Uh, in particular, just to take one example. Um, what should I do, says the emperor, when my, my wife hasn't come before me? Remember, it's just happened in the citadel, okay, just in the kind of top corridors of power. And he gets all his advisors together like it's some sort of national matter. Can you imagine? You know, Camilla hasn't come to dinner, and Charles calls in Rishi Sunak and all the other. Like, what, what shall I do? You know, she didn't come. She's a bit rude to me. Verse 17, they're really concerned. Well, what if everyone finds out, you know, what if it goes outside the palace? You know, what, what if everyone starts copying it? That's a real danger. Everyone will start copying it. I know what we'll do. We'll tell literally the entire empire it's happened. We'll send out a decree telling everyone what's happened. We'll translate it into every language. Okay, we'll, we'll live tweet it. We'll do a little TikTok. We'll blog about it. We'll get it sent out to all the foreign press. What a stupid way to deal with that kind of incident. The Jewish people reading this are meant to be laughing at the emperor. He's worried that people will copy her example. And so he tells the entire world what's happened. We're meant to laugh at the empire. It can't deliver and it makes a fool of itself. Again, the empire of this world and the shadowy figure who stands behind it wants you to invest all your energy, time, money in the here and now. But it's just laughable. John, what would you think if, let's say it snows in, in, in the next month or two, January, Leeds sometimes does. And imagine your, your neighbour, they, they, they start building a little snow house, but they've run out of snow. So they come and knock on your door and say, look, I need more snow for my, my snow palace I'm building. And you say, oh, okay. And they say, I'll, I'll pay you anything for it. And they, they buy all your snow off you. But their, their palace isn't big enough, their building, so they go and knock on the other neighbours. They buy all the snow on the street. They spend all their money. They sell their car to buy more snow to build a bigger snow palace. What would you think? What's ridiculous? What are you doing? Tomorrow the sun's going to rise and it'll melt away. Also, too, when we're driven by our eyes rather than our ears, live by sight, not by faith, we invest all our time, our money, our diaries say that what really matters to us is here and now, this world. We're building snow empires. They are going to fall apart. Nebuchadnezzar's did. Xerxes will be. Alexander the Great is dead and buried. Caesar Augustus, where's he now? We're meant to laugh. Psalm 2, God laughs at those who rebel against him. Live, laugh, love. What about the live? Well, we live. We live for King Jesus. What do we see in Esther 1? We see this king who wants to exploit his bride to show her off, a show-off king. 
But, but when we look at our empire and our emperor, King Jesus, what do we see? We see an emperor who had everything. Before Jesus came to earth, did he lack anything? Did he need worshippers? Did he need riches? No, he needed nothing. And yet he was willing to give everything up to humble himself, to become one of us. Not even a king or an emperor, but to become a Jewish carpenter, a member of a despised race in a backwater corner of the Roman Empire. He was willing to live in poverty, to be rejected, to be crucified for your sake, in order that you might be blessed with the eternal riches of heaven, of forgiveness, of being able to come before God the Father and call him Father of eternal life. All of this was won for you by your king at great cost to himself. And so you can be sure that whatever hard things he calls you to do, he is not exploiting you like a king Ahasuerus. He's not trying to show you off or get something out of you because frankly, he's going to gain nothing from you. He's God. What does he need from you? So all the hard things he calls you to do ultimately are for your benefit. And your call is to live in his service. And when you come to him and know that he has forgiven you everything, knowing that your entire future is secure, you don't need to be driven by what everybody else thinks. Because the emperor, the king of the universe says, you're fine. You and me, we are friends. You're my children. You're my brothers and sisters. Who cares if the person in the office laughs at you? Children, who cares if the person at school thinks you're a bit of a weirdo for following Jesus? King Jesus says, it's fine. You're okay. You don't need to read your image in other people's eyes. Live, laugh, and finally love. When you're that secure, you can stop being an, a hashwarosh and actually give yourself in the service of others, not exploiting people for your gain, but giving yourself for their gain. Real love, that is. Think about relationships or marriage. It's no longer, my marriage is about my wife making me happy. I love her because she makes me feel happy or she satisfies my needs or she looks pretty and makes me look good. Instead, I can turn that around. I'm satisfied in Christ and I can give myself for her service. True love. Same with friendship. No longer are my friends just with the people who can benefit me, make me look good, but I can give myself to all those Christ brings into my path. You will have these two identities. You'll live as a Christian in the world but when you keep your eyes on what you cannot see well then you'll be a true citizen of heaven those superheroes we started with uh, superman uh, the creation of those jewish immigrants superman's real name i learned this week uh, is kalel apparently do you know that some of you do some of you are definitely nerdy enough to know that kalel uh, kalel means Kolel, as you pronounce it in, 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 um, in Hebrew, Kolel means voice of God. El is the Hebrew word for God, and Kol is voice. Superman's real identity, Clark Kent, Superman, but his real identity, voice of God, sent out into the world to be the voice of God. There's deep things going on in these comics, believe it or not. Well, that is who you're called to be. You're called to go out into the world as the voice, the light of the true emperor, which you do by keeping your eyes on the one who's loved you, the one you cannot see but the one who is a much safer refuge than any king or emperor ever will be. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we are drawn by our eyes um, so quickly to live for earthly things, but we, we know we sing fading is uh, the worldly pleasure. 
And so we pray you would open our eyes to see the one that we cannot see. Open our ears to hear and know the gospel is true, that Christ reigns, that all authority in heaven and earth is his. So again, forgive us our sins. And might we know we are safe and secure in Christ. Might we therefore be free from the need to show off, to read our image in other people's eyes. And make us those who love truly uh, as our king did us, we pray. Uh, In his name we ask. Amen.